Faithful had planned to start his morning by finishing up a set of chisel blades for an old client. At nearly ten, though, he had made very little progress. His back ached like fury and his head was pounding, a little reminder of his drunken foolishness like a mallet to the temples with each beat of his heart. Just as revelry had promised, the night before was filled with all sorts of debauchery. In hindsight, Faithful knew this had mostly been an attempt to distract himself from the burden he'd discovered on his back. But when he awoke this morning, the thing had more than tripled in size, and there was no ignoring it now. He found himself unable to change his shirt, the cords of his burden now holding the ale and vomit-stained garment tightly to his body, a double reminder of his wickedness. The burden was also getting in the way of his work, to put it mildly, pulling him ever downward, backward, forward, always toward the cake of purified coal burning at 3,000 degrees. His concentration, which should have been solely focused on the skilled striking of his hammer upon the glowing metal and the anvil horn, was instead divided, the better part going toward keeping his person clear of the disfiguring flames. His frustration was building to crescendo when the door swung open and Evangelist walked in. Good morrow, he said cheerfully. Oh, only you don't look like it's going very well at all. Are you all right, Faithful? I've been better. In fact, I've always been better. He struck the metal again with the peen of his hammer, flattening it a bit and drawing it out, but at the wrong angle. Blast! Hmm, I, I think I see what's throwing you off there. Your, your burden has grown quite a bit since yesterday noon. I can probably guess how you spent your evening. Not now, Evangelist. If not now, when? I'm at work, understand? Maybe we can talk again over dinner tonight. He hammered the metal back into square and hobbled over to the fire to reheat it, bracing himself to avoid tipping into the flames. I'm afraid I'm needed elsewhere this afternoon and may not be back in the city for some time, although I think you already know what I would have said to you. We've been round and round the same questions and read the same scriptures again and again. All that remains is for you to fly from the wrath to come. Faithful returned to the anvil. If you've said everything there is to say, good evangelist, then why are you here? Well, the king of my country requires me not only to answer your questions, but to look for an answer from you. Well, that's annoying. Faithful brought the hammer down again. The metal drew out uniformly. He struck it a second time, bringing a taper to the end of the blade. That's more like it, he said. Just one more little... No! He threw the metal bar into a barrel of water. No, no, no! A curse on this stupid burden! Revelry rushed up from the rear of the shop. Sword drawn, he regarded Evangelist with contempt. Everything all right here? All is well, Faithful said. Put that away. Just think about it, Evangelist urged. Revelry pointed at the door with the tip of his sword. I think you should leave now, Mr. Prophet O'Doom. You're upsetting my partner, which means you're interfering with my business. Our business. And frankly, you're just dragging down the whole spirit of the place. Evangelist redonned his simple hat. As I said, I'm needed elsewhere. He placed a hand on Faithful's shoulder. Do think about it. Out! When he'd left, Revelry sheathed his sword and said, Why do you consort with that man? I'm not going to have this conversation again. Do I need to point out the obvious? Okay, I guess I do. Before you met him, you stood up straighter, you did far better work, and you were a lot more fun to be around. All right then, you've stated the obvious. Now how about you go finish up those hinges for Mr. and Mrs. Discontent? I think you know they need to be perfect. When we were apprentices together, you were a true 
Epicure. Living for the moment, in the moment. Women, wine, mischief. Faithful groaned in pain and leaned his weight on the workbench. Don't remind me, please. Old Faithful would have laughed in that man's face when he started yammering about the wrath to come. Do you want to wind up like that farmer on the edge of town? The one who went out as a fanatic and tried to slink back in unnoticed? He's lost contracts over that. He may be ruined. Some people used to call him the seventh or eighth most eligible bachelor in the city, but I doubt any woman would have him now. Is there a point to this, Rev? My point is, you know, my point is threefold. One, that man is now seven times worse than if he'd never gone out of the city. This brand of religious venture is nothing to fool around with. Two, you're obviously miserable, and yet you refuse to cut yourself off from the one making you miserable, and that's just insane. And three, you, my friend, used to be one of the greats. You were a real riot in... Speaking of riots, what's with all the shouting and carrying on out there? He peered through the window and saw chaos unfolding in the streets. What is going on out there? High and Silver and Gut Check Media presents The Pilgrim's Progress. From this world to that which is to come. John Bunyan's timeless Christian allegory. As told by Zachary Bartles. Chapter 3. Legality Christian's night had been the opposite of Faithful's in almost every way. He had arrived at the foot of the hill morality as the sun was beginning to set. He briefly considered waiting until first light to begin his ascent, but thought better of it. Now that he stood at its base, it wasn't nearly as imposing as it had appeared from a distance, at least from here, on the side closest to the way. Besides, worldly wisemen had assured him that legality lived only a mile from where they'd spoken. If that were truly the case, Christian must have been practically on top of the house already. But when he began to climb, things shifted quickly. The darkness roared in far faster than he had expected. His burden, heavier than ever, threw off his balance and threatened to drag him backward at every moment. This was particularly alarming as the grade of the hill seemed to be changing, tilting, growing steeper and steeper with every little bit of upward progress he made. Likewise, his burden was growing heavier in direct correlation to his altitude. His progress slowed further when the smell of smoke came wafting down from the top of the hill, or rather, the peak of the mountain, for it was quite clearly a mountain now, craggy and massive and dizzyingly tall. How he'd ever thought this would be an easy climb, he had no idea. The smoke was thickening now, both at the peak and, depending on the wind, all around him, like the smoke chugging from a great furnace. Thunder and lightning flashed above, lighting his world in a series of terrifying still images. Under his feet, the whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of a deep, resonating trumpet vibrated his bones and joints. The path up the mountain became yet steeper until it was truly vertical. Still, Christian ascended. For an hour and more, he found toeholds and footholds and hand grips, bracing himself against the shaking of the mountain and the crashing of thunder and lightning. An all-pervasive fear called him back to ground level, but still he moved upward. 
Christian began to hate Mr. Worldly Wiseman and his so-called wise counsel, his promises of ease and comfort. Or rather, he began to hate himself for falling so easily for whatever sort of ruse this was. And that's when the vertical ascent became yet steeper, if that were possible. In fact, it was. Looking up, he saw the summit now hanging out over him. The entire mountain bent back toward him. Fire burned at the top, directly above his head, a consuming fire that he knew would never burn out. Reaching tenuously for the next hand grip, he felt the shift in his own weight, just as his burden swung in the other direction, and he knew he was going to fall. Christian seemed to hang in midair for the space of a breath, during which he twisted his body, putting the burden between himself and the ground. <coughs> Whether this softened the blow of his landing or not, he couldn't say. What he did know was pain, radiating out to all of his extremities. Rolling onto his side, the packed earth beneath him dug into his hip and shoulder, a dull, throbbing ache. Lightning flashed again, and Christian saw the mountain jutting out above him, hanging over him as if it meant to fall on him and bury him forever. He coughed a hollow, desperate laugh at what he saw. After all his work, all his sweat, all the fear he'd pushed against to try and reach the top, he'd fallen all of 15 or 20 feet. He could see the last handhold he'd gripped, the one that failed him, and a hundred more that he could have used were he not exhausted, terrified, and dragging his burden with him. Another flash of lightning as the mountain again shook was all the warning Christian needed. One by one, the handholds he'd coveted began raining down, fistfuls of rock crashing against the ground all around him, larger and larger, slamming into the earth. He rolled aside to avoid the first one, and then, covering his head, raced through the deadly downpour, praying for deliverance from the fire and lightning and crumbling mountain. Another flash of lightning brought an answer to his prayers. A few steps ahead, a small rocky recess opened up, a narrow alcove in the earth. Christian took two more desperate, stumbling steps and threw himself into the mouth of the recess, which barely accommodated his entire body burden and all. Above him, he could hear rocks exploding against the earth. This continued for perhaps half an hour. Then, all at once, it stopped, as did the flashing lightning and quaking earth. The smell of smoke receded, and Christian was left in silent, inky darkness. He dared not extract himself from his hole now, nor did he have the strength. Best to stay here, ensconced by the earth, and get a good night's sleep, he decided. He was, of course, monumentally uncomfortable, wedged into the rocky opening, lying on his stomach, unable to turn over, but at least he was safe, assuming no predatory beasts found him during the night. If that were to happen, he'd be a helpless victim and an easy meal. Christian willed sleep to overtake him. He had no pillow and no blanket, only his burden, which he thought might at least offer some warmth, but which somehow seemed only to make him all the colder. Spent, hopeless, and full of regret, he began to weep, and he was still weeping when he fell asleep. When he awakened, Christian could see fragments of daylight spilling in around him. Although he was awake, his limbs were very much not, and it took quite some time and all of Christian's combined will and strength to worm his way awkwardly back out of the alcove. As he stood, his body complaining all the way, he saw the sun already a good distance up from the horizon, nearly level with the top of the hill, which, again, looked like a hill, and a rather pleasant one at that. 
The only evidence of the previous night's terrors was the collection of rocks embedded in the earth all around him. To his great relief, his burden had returned to its former weight as well. Christian smiled and took a moment to enjoy the sight of a beautiful English robin pulling a fat pink worm from the ground for breakfast. A renewed sense of hope filled his heart and mind. He stood for a moment in the contrast between this beautiful setting and all the frights of the night before. His mistake, Christian thought, had been trying to scale the hill in the dark. What a hasty fool he'd been. It was almost impossible to imagine all that fire and smoke and lightning manifesting now in the pleasant light of morning. A current shrub, a stone's throw away, caught his eye. Stretching out his stiff arms and legs and cracking his weary back, he made a decision. He would eat some berries for breakfast, and he would reach the top of that hill in time to have lunch with Mr. Legality. Revelry slipped into the shop and pushed the door shut, bracing it with his back. Everyone is going crazy, he said. It's like they've all been talking to your friend Evangelist, only they haven't, which is odd. What do you mean? Faithful asked. They're all saying that our city will, in a short time, be burned to the ground with fire from heaven. Sound familiar? Really? It is in everyone's mouth. Are they making plans to escape the danger? Perhaps I could join a party of... Revelry laughed. Escape? Oh, faithful. They don't believe it. Just as you don't believe it. It's, it's just something to talk about. An excuse to blow off steam. A, a source of some excitement. How can you be so sure? For one, they're all cursing and mocking that man Christian who set out from here as the cause of this crisis, rather than a worthy example to be followed. Oh, and that, that sad sack who came back as well. You should hear what they're saying about him. I hope for his sake they don't find him before their blood cools. No one can really be sure, though. Any rational person would have to admit it's not outside the realm of possibility that our city will burn. Revelry stared out the window and thought, You're right, Faithful. He walked to the back corner of the shop, retrieved a bulging coin purse from beneath a loose floorboard, and tucked it into his belt. If it all might end tonight, he said solemnly, there's something I must see to today. As he left the shop, he said, Hold down the fort, would you, Faithful? Or close up shop, I care not. Faithful stood at the window, watching his friend disappear into the madness, then stood a while longer, staring out into the unrest. But this seemed to inflame his burden, so he too stepped outside, locking the door behind him. He fought his way through the crowds, down High Street, not sure where he was even headed. More than once, he was jostled hard enough that he felt his burden almost lift away from his back for a moment, but never enough for any real relief. Then he found himself shunted to the side of the street and looking up at the raised patio of the Red Horse Inn, his preferred public house. And there, seated at the very table where he and Evangelist had shared half a dozen meals while discussing the contents of that troubling book, was Christiana, gazing down impassively at the uproar, sipping some tea. She seemed to Faithful like a jaded queen who, having given up on her people, made content to watch them destroy one another. It suddenly occurred to Faithful that, of everyone in the City of Destruction, this woman may have some useful information about the burden on his back. After all, as everyone now knew, Christian's troubles had begun in the same way. 
He mounted the stone steps to the large porch and moved along the curved railing toward her table, unsure how to broach the subject. Pardon me, ma'am, he said tentatively. I have a question for you about your husband and, and his burden. He drew closer yet and added, it's very important. Christiana's eyes remained fixed on the street below. I am a married woman, she said, sitting alone in a public house, which would itself undoubtedly raise eyebrows were the fabric of our society not unraveling before our eyes. Do you really think it proper to approach me like this, bending down so close, so familiar? I'm sorry for that. It's not by choice. He lowered himself carefully onto a bench at the next table, the last six inches in free fall. You see, like good Christian, I, I do not wish to discuss Christian. Not with you. Be gone. She waved her hand dismissively. What would you like? A burly waiter hovered over Faithful. Fish and chips and shepherd's pie today. And of course, you know the drinks. I'm, I'm fine. No, thank you. Mr. Faithful, if you're going to sit in here, you have to order something or take up a room. Fine, whatever. Bring me an ale. And you, madam, are you in need of anything else? Christiana glanced at Faithful and shook her head. The waiter looked disapprovingly at the two of them and clomped off. Believe me, I would not normally bother you, Faithful pressed, but it's a matter of... Christiana turned and locked eyes with him. Hers were bloodshot and glassy. Please, just go away, blacksmith. I, I will. Just tell me one thing, okay? When his burden began to grow, did your husband ever try to... I'll yell murder. On a day like today, perhaps no one would notice, but then again, perhaps they would. The waiter returned with a pewter tankard, which he plopped down on the board. Faithful placed a coin in his waiting hand and stood. Seems I'm not welcome here, he said. Someone else can enjoy this one on me. You're not abandoning your drink, are you, Faithful? The Reverend Mr. Smoothman had appeared, seemingly out of nowhere, now eyeing the vessel on the table. <laughs> it's all yours, Parson. Smoothman flipped the lid and drained the drink in two long pulls, wiping foam from his pencil-thin mustache. Then, turning his attention toward Christiana, he asked, Where are your children while you sit here, having tea? She rolled her eyes. They're with mercy, my maid, if you must know. The reverend looked upon her with exaggerated pity for a few seconds, before bellying up to the railing overlooking the street and bellowing the words, People of destruction! His deep and resonating preacher's voice brought a hush from below. I know you are filled with fear, my children. Tares have been sown among you, tares of terror. But remember the words of the good book. Perfect love casts out fear. My people, banish fear. I know many of you have heard it repeated by scoundrels and even by some good men that our city will be destroyed by fire raining down. But remember the words of the good shepherd himself in the face of the storm. Peace, peace, he said to the wind and the waves. And today he says to you, peace, peace. He bids you remember that God is a God of love, not a God of vengeance. And I bid you to set your minds on things that are more beneficial, positive things, happy thoughts. Faithful descended the steps to the street. Tell me this, have you come to God's house on the Lord's day? Then you are the Lord's. He would never cast you out. Be encouraged and do not from the east. Were you Spices from the east. Two blocks down, Faithful found the entire roadway blocked by a frothing mass of hooligans who had a man cornered against the cobbler's shop like a pack of hounds around a mink. As he drew closer, Faithful recognized their prey. 
It was pliable, that poor little scapegoat who had followed Christian on pilgrimage before turning back. The crowd was pelting him with rotten produce and clods of dirt. For his part, Pliable alternated between begging and seemingly playing dead. Righteous anger burned in Faithful's breast at the sight of this ruthless injustice. He pressed himself through the crowd, leveraging his burden to box out anyone who might challenge him. As he made his way toward the miserable victim, someone called out, Hang him! He's a turncoat! Yeah, hang all traitors! Against God and country! Obstinate emerged from the front of the pack and turned back to address them, raising his hands for quiet. Friends, I was there when this man took a solemn oath to follow the way of pilgrimage through fair skies or troubled all the way to the celestial city. He made it less than one day. He was not true to his profession, and now the Almighty threatens to pour out his anger on all of us unless we make of him an example and an expiation. Faithful squeezed between the last few shoulders and stumbled into Obstinate. Using the momentum, he shoved him hard away from his one-time friend and inserted himself firmly between Pliable and the mob. Stop a moment and think, Faithful warned. You are all caught up in a frenzy. This man has been through enough. If you want to hurt him any more than you already have, you'll have to come through me. For a moment, he thought he saw their faces soften. Then a voice from behind him, Pliable's voice, said, If you're looking to hang someone, hang the blacksmith here. I saw him with that man evangelist a a bunch of times. Christian only met him once, but the blacksmith has dinner with him every night at the Red Horse. Look how he's standing, someone called out. Something on your back there, Faithful? Hang them both, Obstinate shouted. The palpable malice returned to the group as each man added a bit of heat to the pot, just waiting for it to boil over. Just then, Revelry's voice rose up from beyond the mob. Faithful! We're doing it! Every pub in town while the world still stands! Tomorrow we die, tonight we drink! He was leading a group of roving, staggering disciples through the streets. Faithful, join us! He called out. On to the Green Door Tavern! I can't reach you! Faithful replied. Come get me and uh, I'll buy the next round. At once, Revelry's carousing congregation shifted course, barreling into the midst of the lynch mob and bodily hauling Faithful up onto their shoulders, cheering all the while. They carried him with a sense of ceremony to the entrance of the green door, only to find it already mobbed and impassable. Dropping to the street, Faithful made his way as stealthily as possible through the legs of the men all around him, between two buildings, over a fence, and down a circuitous route of back streets and alleys, until he was in open country, headed home. Burned into his mind were the hateful faces of Obstinate and his other neighbors glaring murder at him as he rode the crowd to safety. This would all blow over someday, but maybe not someday soon. Faithful felt a pressing need to get home and fortify his house. Despite his best intentions and his resolution to the contrary, Christian remained at the foot of the hill for hours. It was the oddest thing. When he stood there, looking up at the rolling green grass and lush trees of the hill, he felt good inside, safe, content. When he thought about ascending the hill, he felt even better. The idea of it was a great comfort to him. But when the sole of his shoe touched that first inclining ground, he found all of that displaced by a horrible, cold fear. It was a problem of time, he realized, of tense. Climbing the hill in the future tense meant comfort and security. In the present tense, 
trepidation, anxiety, and much worse. And so he hovered there in the sweet spot, looking up at the hill morality and thinking about how very doable a task it was, and how, inevitably, he would climb to the top of that hill and triumphantly plant his flag. Along with the warmth of the sun on his face, this brought a great sense of peace, at least as long as he thought of the hill in general, as a whole, and did not focus on any individual feature of it. As noon came and went, his stomach began to rumble and complain, but hunger could not outweigh apprehension, and still he sat at the base of the hill, eyes fixed pleasantly upon it. But as the sun began its descent in the sky, warming his back now and not his face, Christian realized that if he tarried indefinitely, he would soon have to endure another frightful night in this place. And that was enough to bring him to his feet. He set his face toward the summit and began to climb once again, one trepidatious step at a time, fighting the fear, trying to draw hope and comfort and courage from the afternoon sun. But the sun beat down on him, heating his burden and burning his neck, and he began to sweat into his already filthy clothes. The daylight was no help at all, he realized. In fact, as the smell of smoke returned, along with the dizzying effect of the mountain tipping back toward him, the sun almost made things worse. He could see all the clearer the impossible task ahead of him. It's just an optical illusion, he said to himself, trying on common sense as a comforter. A traveling merchant had once told him about Francesco Borromini and his famous forced perspective sculptures that played havoc with the mind and the eyes. Perhaps Mr. Legality used a similar tactic to protect his house from thieves and marauders. But Christian didn't believe his own thoughts. The now familiar fear began to grip him even tighter than before. The fear he'd experienced in licks and whiffs this morning at the foot of the mountain and had endured full force the night before. It was unlike any fear he'd ever felt, far, far deeper. As thick and heavy as the dread had been in the Slough of Despond, this fear made that seem like water flowing gently down a stream. It was as if every anxiety and every nightmare he'd ever experienced in life up to this point had only touched the outside of his soul, as the muck from the Slough still clung to the outside of his person, but this fear went all the way to his core. It made him want to fall on his face and beg for mercy, but he knew he had to keep climbing, and so he did, out of simple necessity. Passing beyond the point where he'd fallen the night before, climbing up the bottom of the exaggerated incline toward the top of the leaning mountain, one tentative grip at a time. The clouds rolled in and the sun's light retreated. As he pushed upward, the rumbling resumed and the lightning and the fire. The smoke choked him out and stung his eyes. Again, his burden sagged, digging into his shoulders as though it contained the very mass of the mountain itself. Another flash of lightning and a flash of clarity with it. To climb this mountain was impossible, at least while wearing a burden on his back. This was all wasted effort, wasted precious time. He'd lost a full day from his pilgrimage on this fool's errand. To waste more would be to multiply his sins. But how to go back down? Climbing up was hard enough, but at least he was able to see what lay ahead of him while he felt his way forward. He tried a step in reverse, reaching back, feeling about desperately. He slipped, recovered, then fell. A moment of freefall, interrupted by his burden connecting with the branches of a chestnut tree. 
He bounced downward from branch to branch like a billiard ball against the skittles. The last ten feet he was unencumbered, and the ground connected hard with his hands and chest, knocking the wind from him. He lay motionless for a few minutes, before experimentally pulling himself to his feet, sore and battered, but seemingly unbroken. Looking up, he saw the peak of the mountain retreating from above his head, and was filled with an inexplicable desire to try once again. Feeling more than a little foolish for his fall, Christian looked this way and that, as if to make sure no one had been watching, and to his great dismay, he saw a familiar figure walking up the path toward him, his face severe. "'What are you doing here?' Evangelist asked. Christian studied his feet. I could be wrong, but I thought you were the man I found outside the city of destruction, desperately shouting, what must I do to be saved? Are you that man? I am that man. Did I not direct you to follow the shining light to the wicket gate to go neither to the left nor to the right? Yes, dear sir, you, you did. How then have you turned aside so quickly? You are way out of the way. Christian swallowed hard and looked into Evangelist's face. I met a man not far from the Slough of Despond who convinced me there was an easier way to take off my burden. In a town called Morality, I was to visit a man named Legality or, or his son. Yes, yes, civility. I've heard this before. Stand still a little, Christian, that I might show you the word of God. So Christian stood, trembling. Hear the word of the Lord. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? Tell me, do you understand these words? Yes. And these? The just shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. I, I understand, Christian said, and I am ashamed. You have rejected the counsel of the Most High and run back into this misery, back from the way of peace into danger of damnation. Christian fell at his feet and began to cry. I am undone. I am lost forever, I know. I'm... Stand up, Evangelist said. I'm a fellow pilgrim, not an angel. Christian rose and stood again, still trembling, before Evangelist. This man who sent you here, what was his name? Mr. Wiseman, Worldly Wiseman. I gathered as much. This Mr. Worldly Wiseman who deluded you so easily along the way is the same man I would have found picking the pockets of your corpse had I come along an hour later. He earned his name by loving only the wisdom of this world. He faithfully attends the First Church of Morality because the parson there, a Mr. Whitewash, preaches doctrine that saves, not by the cross, but from the cross. And when Mr. Wiseman sits in that cursed chapel and hears that preaching, he is filled with zeal to go out and pervert the ways of others. I, I see that now so clearly. You see that now, do you? You listen quite carefully to his wise counsel. Do you think you can listen to mine? I can't. I, I will. Yes. Then remember these words. There are three things in worldly Wiseman's counsel that you must hate with all your being. Oh, believe me, I, I, I hate all of... No, no talking. Listen. Three things. Number one. His turning you out of the way. 
The Lord himself told us to enter through the narrow gate, the very gate to which I sent you. For wide is the gate, he tells us, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Secondly, you must hate his laboring to make the cross repugnant to you. This is how you know you are dealing with an agent of hell, no matter how well-dressed or polite or welcoming or friendly he may seem. Christian, you must cherish the cross more than all the treasures of Egypt. Remember what the King of Glory has told us, whoever saves his life will lose it. Without the cross, you cannot have eternal life. If a man tries to convince you instead that the cross will be your death, you must hate his teaching and have nothing to do with him except perhaps to rebuke him plainly and knock the dust from your shoes in his direction. And finally, you must hate that he sent you where he did. The man you sought after was named Legality, and truly he does live on this hill. What the liar Wiseman did not tell you is that Legality is the son of a bondwoman who is even now in bondage along with her children and grandchildren. The scriptures tell us a mystery when they call this woman Mount Sinai, which you feared would fall upon your head and kill you. Tell me, if she and her children are in bondage, how could they possibly make you free? Christian could only shake his head. This man legality is a swindler, a huckster. He has built for himself, with worldly wise men's help, a great reputation for removing burdens, but I tell you, he has never removed a single burden from a single back in all his days. In fact, he opens them up and adds many more heavy rocks to their loads before sending his victims away. Therefore, this Mr. Worldly Wiseman is an alien, and Mr. Legality a cheat. And as for his son, Civility, notwithstanding his simpering looks, he is a hypocrite. Together, these men offer nothing but a plot to trick you out of your salvation. He called out to the mountain, Now, if what I have said is true, let heaven itself confirm it. From the top of the mountain came fire and smoke, more rumbling and quaking. Christian cowered. A voice rang out above all the noise of the mountain, saying, These words are trustworthy and true. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Christian gripped his head, fell to his knees, and began to shout and lament, cursing the moment he met worldly wise men, calling himself a thousand fools for taking his advice. I was so ashamed that this man's arguments flowing from the flesh should entice me to go out of the way. Looking up to Evangelist, he asked, Is there any hope? Can I turn back again? Will, will they still have me at the wicket gate? Your sin is twofold, Evangelist said, his voice hard. You have forsaken what is good and tread on forbidden paths. The fire burned louder, and the thunder crashed, and the ground shook. Christian squeezed his eyes shut, sending a torrent of tears cascading down his cheeks. Be comforted, Christian, Evangelist said, taking a knee and putting a hand on Christian's shoulder. All manner of sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. Do not doubt, but believe. You have repented of your sin. Far be it from me to condemn you. The sound of the great fire subsided, and the thunder ceased. 
and the earth became still as a still small voice spoke in barely a whisper directly to Christian's soul, saying, Neither do I condemn you. Now go, go and sin no more. Faithful lived in a small cottage, which he'd inherited from his father. By the time he arrived there, it was already twilight. Only when he had locked and barred the door and checked every inch of his home for concealed intruders could he finally stop and think about what to do next. Every man in that crowd today knew where to find Faithful. Many of them had been inside his home. How far would this frenzy go? Would they come all the way out here to string him up? Perhaps they'd already put poor Pliable to death and satiated their bloodlust. Or perhaps not. Then, of course, there was the matter of fire and brimstone raining down from heaven to consume the city. In the back of his mind, Faithful had been thinking that his house may be far enough out in the country to avoid any direct hits from above. Yes, that was a good bet. A bet he would take. He would not be pressured to set out like Christian on a pilgrimage, a lifelong promise made based on a moment's misgivings. He would wait out this madness here in his house, comfortable and secure. He had enough supplies, wood for the fire, a cellar full of root vegetables and canned fruit, water was plentiful, and the house itself was rather secure. Faithful looked down at his sword, one of the finest in the city. He was adept enough with it, assuming he was not overrun. This called to mind another source of security. He ran to his bedchamber and dropped to his knees, reaching under the bureau and coming out with an ornate oak case, which he opened to reveal a velvet lining, cradling a flintlock pistol, five lead balls, a powder flask, and a rod. The weapon had been payment in full for a rather extensive job he'd done two years earlier for a retired naval commander. Since then, Faithful had only pulled it out once, and now he removed it a second time, pouring a measure of powder down the muzzle, followed by wadding and the deadly ball itself. With the ramrod, he pushed it all down to the breach. He lit no lamps and, in the dark, pulled a chair out from his table and sat in it, facing the front door. He would not sleep tonight. He would be vigilant, faithful to his own cause. He himself would be his own security. For more than an hour, he sat there, nodding off in the chair twice, but coming quickly back to himself both times. It was in the deadest, darkest hour of the night when he heard someone approaching his door. He dropped to the floor and crawled quickly to the front window, peering out into the darkness. There he saw a man's face glowing in the light of a lantern approaching the door. How many more might be following behind him he could not tell. Three quick, hard raps on his door brought a spear of alarm into his heart, his lungs, his mind. Faithful had always been a man to look danger in the eye. He figured his best approach to dealing with the sort of rogues who slink in under cover of darkness was to meet them face to face. He stood, quickly lit two of his own lamps, filling the house with a dappled light, and opened the door. There he stood tall, framed in the doorway, his broad shoulders drawn up, the pistol pointed downward toward the man's feet. He was an old man with a long white beard and piercing brown eyes. Faithful's courage faltered for a moment as he realized that this man carried no lantern after all. Rather, his face glowed by its own light. Who are you? He demanded. And what do you want? 
I am here for your house, the old man said. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's, uh, it's not for sale. I am not here to buy it, but to burn it to the ground. Look, I'm sure this was a hilarious joke when you conceived of it, but believe me, you've picked the absolute worst night and the worst house on which to carry it out. I want you off my land as fast as those tired old legs can carry you, or things are going to take a turn you won't like. I have every right to burn this house. The old man reached into his coat and produced a folded document which he held up with a flick of his wrist. All legal and in order. Always legal and in order. The document was dense, written in a tight script. Faithful could see an official seal and several signatures, although he could not make them out. Something about this man's presence, even apart from his glowing face, evaded Faithful's courage. He felt oddly like a small child, caught in a lie. It's late, he said, and this conversation is over. Leave. This is your last warning. No. You need to leave. Heed your own warning. Faithful raised the gun, pointing the muzzle six inches from the man's face. I'm going to count to three. One. With unexpected speed, the man grabbed the gun and slammed it against the ground, breaking the frizzen loose and rendering the weapon useless. Oh, enough of this. Faithful drew his sword and made to swing it at this intruder, but his burden threw him off balance. The old man needed only take a leisurely step back and watch Faithful fall unceremoniously to the ground. The sword spilled from his hand, and the old man kicked it away by the hilt out into the darkness. Stooping down, he casually scooped up a large rock and hefted it over his head. Are you quite finished? he asked. Or shall I finish you? No, I don't. I, I, I give up. Then do as I say and leave this place, never to return. I'll give you an hour to gather your belongings. Faithful stood, his knees smarting but his pride all the more. And if I'm still here, then I will burn it down over your head. Thanks for listening. To support this program and for additional content and perks, visit patreon.com slash Pilgrim's Progress. The Pilgrim's Progress, From This World to That Which Is to Come, adapted by Zachary Bartles from John Bunyan's classic manuscript. This text, copyright 2022, Zachary Bartles. This recording, copyright 2022, high and silver, all rights reserved. Produced by Brad Atchison and Zachary Bartles. Additional sound effects and music licensed from pond5.com. Scripture quotations are from the ESV Bible, the Holy Bible English Standard Version, copyright 2001 by Crossway, a publishing ministry of good news publishers, used by permission. High and silver. Cut. <laughs>